You've probably heard somewhere along the line the story of Roy Regals, and um, they consider this to be one of the biggest blunders in sports history. In 1929, the Rose Bowl is being played between the University of California and Georgia Tech. The Georgia Tech football team fumbles the ball. Roy Regals, who is the center, picks the ball up and runs 65 yards in the wrong direction. His own quarterback is chasing him, saying, stop, stop, turn around. And just before Roy crosses the goal line for the other team, his own teammate tackles him at the two-yard line. But it doesn't help very much because Georgia Tech gets the ball and um, there's a score and Roy ruined everything. Some people say it's the craziest thing that ever has happened in sports. And the radio announcer says, what am I seeing? What's wrong with me? Am I crazy? Am I crazy? Am I crazy? And uh, poor Roy made the biggest blunder in football history. Um, at halftime, Roy doesn't even want to go back out on the field. He, he can't bear to face the people, the, the fans, the players. He doesn't even want to go out there. And his coach says, Roy, get up. And go back out there. The game is only half over. And they say that for the rest of that game, he played inspired football. He even blocked a punt. The College Football Hall of Fame chose that play, the the wrong way run in the Rose Bowl, as one of the 100 most memorable moments of the entire century of the 1900s. Um, He had a stellar second half performance. Everybody loved him. The following year, in his senior year of college, he was the captain of the football team. He was named the All-American college football player in his position. And he was inducted into the Rose Bowl Hall of Fame because he was so wonderful, so good, so well-liked. He fought in World War II. He also was a successful businessman. And in every way, he was great. In 1965, another player made the same mistake in the National Football League and he sent the fellow a little telegram and said, you know, welcome to the club. So uh, today we're talking about what a wonderful God we have. We have a God of second chances. And I don't know about you, but I'm so glad we have a God of second chances. And it figures prominently into our story in Acts chapter 13. These are the first ever steps of the new church of Jesus In the area of missions. Now we're going to have a mostly Gentile church going to mostly Gentile places that are very pagan and very hard to be. The church is on the offensive. And as soon as the church decides to bring the gospel where it's never really been before, then they're going to fight two battles. One battle comes from the outside. One battle comes from the inside. And so that's what we're looking at today. Here's what it sounds like in Acts 13. Now there were in the church that was at Antioch certain prophets and teachers as Barnabas and Simeon that was called Neger and Lucius of Cyrene and Menaean, which had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch and Saul. As they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Spirit said, separate for me Barnabas and Saul for the work unto which I have called them. And when they had fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them, they sent them away. So they being sent forth by the Holy Spirit departed unto Seleucia. And from there, they sailed 130 miles to the island of Cyprus. That's where it all begins. In Cyprus, they come to Salamis. When they were at Salamis, they preached the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. And they also had John as their assistant. 
And when they had gone through the isle unto Paphos, still on the island, but at the other end, they found a certain sorcerer, a false prophet, a Jew, whose name was Bar-Jesus, who was the deputy uh, of, uh, yes, uh, I accidentally left out part. The deputy of that country is Sergius Paulus. I just want you to notice that the name Paulus is also Saul's Roman name. Uh, Saul is called Paul. So just notice that as we go. He's a prudent man. He called for Barnabas and Saul and desired to hear the word of God. But Elymas the sorcerer, for so is his name by interpretation, withstood them, stood against them, seeking to turn away the deputy from the faith. Then Saul, who is also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, set his eyes on him and said, Oh, full of all deception and all misconduct, you child of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, will you not cease to pervert the right ways of the Lord? And now, see here, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you shall be blind, not seeing the sun for a season. And immediately there fell on him a mist and a darkness, and he went about seeking someone to lead him by the hand. Then the deputy, when he saw what was done, he believed, being astonished at the doctrine of the Lord. Now when Paul and his company loosed their ship from Paphos, they came to Perga in Pamphylia, and John, departing from them, returned to Jerusalem. So that's our text today. We want to talk about a few introductory matters before we get into the warfare of this whole thing. Uh, First of all, the importance of the church at Antioch in these years. We're talking about the years from about 43 to 47. 43 being when Paul first came to Antioch when Barnabas recruited him to come and help with the Gentiles there. And 47 being the time of the first missionary journey, which is our topic today. This is the first ever substantially Gentile church reaching out to substantially Gentile areas, overwhelmingly pagan areas, and so this is a really big thing, and it's taking place not in Jerusalem. This calling and sending forth is taking place in Antioch, which, as you might remember, is north of Jerusalem. Um, Notice the relative rarity of people being called by God to become career missionaries. So here we have sayings that are not true. For example, One very, very famous pastor whom I love very much from the 1900s, early 1900s, uh, well, from 1900, he said, every Christian is either a missionary or an imposter. Well, that's not true. That's not great. Um, I often heard things like this when I was a young adult. So the Great Commission has already commanded you to go. So you need no further direct calling to be a missionary. You've already been told to go to be a missionary. Now you better have a direct calling to explain why you are the exceptional person who should not go after all. So everybody has to be a missionary. And if you're not going to go, you better have a really good reason. Uh, That's not true. What we see really in Acts chapter 13 is that you have a substantial church in Antioch and only two are called to go. And they're pretty special. All right, the importance of Antioch, again, in our text. You'll notice they ministered to the Lord, they fasted. The the Lord indicates to them that Barnabas and Saul should go to other parts of the world as missionaries. So we see in verse 3, they laid their hands and they sent them away. So this is human beings sending other human beings to faraway places. They laid hands on them, sent them away. But notice in verse 4, so they being sent forth by the Holy Spirit departed. So, query, who sent them? The people or the Lord? And of course the answer is both. 
And so they are called by God and they are called by their own friends at the Church of Antioch to go and carry the gospel into very pagan lands. Notice the importance of Paul, the importance of Gentiles, and the importance of the church at Antioch in all that's taking place here. Notice that Peter is no longer talked about in the book of Acts. When we get to chapter 13, we're not going to talk about Peter anymore in the whole book of Acts, except chapter 15. Chapter 15, he's at the Jerusalem Council, so Peter comes up again. But the book of Acts isn't going to talk about Peter anymore. We're done with Peter. Now we're going to talk about Paul. Notice also that we're done, by and large, talking about Jerusalem. Uh, Jerusalem is no longer so important to the outline of Acts. Now it's all about Antioch. And when Paul comes back from one of his, one of his missionary tours, he's going to report back to the people in Antioch, not reporting back to the people in Jerusalem. Notice that from chapter 13, verse 9 forward, we're never going to call Paul Saul again. We're all done with that. Saul is his Hebrew name, you know, like King Saul in the Old Testament, the first king. Saul is his Hebrew name. But from now on, we're going to call him by his Roman name, which is Paul. And that happens in the first missionary tour. And we're not going to ever see Paul called Saul again in the New Testament, except when we are directly quoting his conversion experiences. Then, because they use the term Saul in those days, we have to use the word Saul when we are quoting but we're done calling him Saul. We're not going to call him Saul anymore. We are shifting. Acts 1 through 12 is all about Peter. Acts 13 to 28 is all about Paul. That's just the way it is. So just notice that we have a big shift going on here. And we ask the question, why did they start with the island of Cyprus? That's such an interesting question just by way of introduction. Well, it's because believers from Cyprus were instrumental in starting the church at Antioch. So remember, Antioch is the missionary sending church And the first place the new missionaries go is Cyprus. Well, why? Because people from Cyprus help establish the church at Antioch. So chapter 11, verse 19 talks about this. Now, those who were scattered abroad upon the persecution that arose from Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, preaching the word to none but the Jews only. And some of them were men of Cyprus and Cyrene, which when they had come to Antioch, spoke to the Greeks preaching the Lord Jesus and the hand of the Lord was with them and a great number believed. So Antioch owed its birth in some respects to the people in Cyprus. So let's go to Cyprus first with our new missionaries. Also remember, Cyprus is the home area of Barnabas. So the two great missionaries in the first missionary tour are Paul and Barnabas. Well, Barnabas is from Cyprus. Remember chapter 4 and Joseph who was called by the apostles Barnabas. He was a Levite of the country of Cyprus. So Barnabas comes from Cyprus. Furthermore, it says that they were going to bring a young man named John Mark with them on this missionary tour. And John Mark is Barnabas's nephew. And so John Mark probably has relatives on the island of Cyprus too. Cyprus also had already established... um, a little enclave of believers and spiritually sensitive Jewish people. So it would make sense to try going to Cyprus where we already have a core of interest. So in Acts 11:20 again, men of Cyprus had come to Antioch and preached. In Acts 13, verse 5, when they were at Salamis, they preached the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. So we already have some Jewish people who are interested. We already have a core of believers. Let's go to Cyprus. Plus, it's close. 
finally, Cyprus is, uh, we should remember, a very, very, very pagan place. It's kind of a scary place. Cyprus was the world headquarters of the worship of Venus, and Venus's other name is Aphrodite. So in all the world, where's the headquarters of the worship of the goddess Venus? Right there on the island. And Paphos is uh, a, a major city on the island of Cyprus. She, uh, Venus, is called the Cyprian goddess, you know, from the island of Cyprus. She's the Cyprian goddess. And uh, it was always understood that the um, demon spirit behind Venus had a special power, a special fortress, a special residence on the island of Cyprus, and particularly uh, in the city of Paphos. And the worship of Venus, because she was the goddess of love, included uh, harlot priestesses. And so you can imagine what that's all about. So this first stop of the first ever proper missionaries is in a pretty intense place. All right. As you might imagine, because of the paganism of that island, spiritual warfare is coming and it's going to come especially centered around a sorcerer named Elemis. So here's what it sounds like in our text. When they had gone through the Isle of Paphos, uh, unto Paphos, that is, the island of Cyprus, and they come to the west side of the island, Paphos, they found a certain sorcerer, a false prophet, a Jew whose name was Bar-Jesus, who was with the deputy. The deputy is like the mayor or the governor of that area, appointed by the Roman emperor to be the boss of the island. Well, that deputy is named Sergius Paulus, who desired to hear the word of God. So these are important people that we're running into in the book of Acts. Remember, Cornelius was a centurion, a a soldier with great responsibility, an officer in the Roman army. Here is a man who is basically the mayor or even the governor, you might say, of the island. He's a very important man, and he is interested to hear the word of God. But Elymas the sorcerer withstood them, seeking to turn the deputy away from the faith. He doesn't want the governor, the mayor, to become a Christian. So Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, set his eyes on him and said, Oh, full of all deception and misconduct, you child of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, will you not cease to pervert the right ways of the Lord? And now, see here, the hand of the Lord is upon you. You should be blind, not seeing the sun. You're so blind you can't even see the sunlight. Not seeing the sun for a season, temporary. And immediately there fell on him a mist and a darkness, and he went about seeking someone to lead him by the hand. And because he didn't immediately have somebody to lead him by the hand, you get the idea that maybe people were afraid of him and maybe afraid to be standing too close to him when the lightning from God struck. And so he's like, who's going to help me? Who's going to help me? And maybe there's nobody who wants to help him. Additionally, you'll see that it's going to be a double miracle because he is stricken with blindness, but it's temporary. So the blindness is also going to be healed eventually, stricken with blindness for a season. But you notice that he's a sorcerer. Um, And his whole idea is to seek to turn the governor, the mayor, away from the faith. That's his plan. And that's always the way it is. Demonic activity is here around us today as well. And all the demonic activity in our world is going to be focused on the the prospect of turning people away from the Christian faith. Remember that for a moment. Additionally, you'll see that Paul's conduct toward him is not, um, you might say, friendly. Um, His activity towards this astrologer, sorcerer, occult practitioner 
is the opposite of healing. Sort of like Ananias and Sapphira, they were stricken dead. Well, this is the opposite of healing. I'm not going to heal your blindness. I'm going to cause your blindness. And so you might say, well, Paul wasn't exactly overly friendly in this situation. Chapter 13, verse 11. And now see here, the hand of the Lord is upon you and you shall be blind. And so this is not Paul healing. This is Paul striking. Also notice that in the book of Acts, there's never any real question about the reality of sorcery, astrology, occult power. There's no question. The Bible just takes it for granted that there are supernatural forces at work in our world. And so it's not really a question. Our text says in verse 6, there was a sorcerer, astrologer especially, a false prophet, a Jew. His name is Elymas, the sorcerer. And he's called a false prophet, but that doesn't mean he's faking it. It means that he's not telling the truth. He's opposed to the truth, so he's false. But he actually has occult power. And sometimes we think, oh, well, that's not anything I need to worry about. But it is too. Uh, When we decide to bring the gospel to the next person in our world, there is going to be demonic resistance to that in every case. More so, maybe, in certain lands where Satan has a fortress established. It's a little stronger than the fortresses he has here. Nevertheless, if you're going to represent Jesus in your world, there's going to be demonic interference. And you just have to live with that. That's the way things are. In 1982, a Reader's Digest publication had a chapter in it about, um, it was entitled, A Pact with the Devil, about a 16-year-old girl, a teenage girl in South Africa who went to a Catholic boarding school and uh, became demon-possessed. And the priests and the nuns who were caring for her in that Catholic school said that she became strangely hostile in Christian atmospheres. Whenever it was too Christian, she would get all agitated and upset. They said, and we take these to be honest reports, there's really no doubt that these things were happening. They said she could speak languages that she never studied. The nuns understood Polish, German, and French, and this girl who had never studied those languages was speaking in Polish, German, and French. She could also reveal precise details about the personal lives of others. She talked to a priest who had traveled from South Africa to Rome, and she told him all the places he stopped along the way, the addresses that he stopped at along the way. She had no way of knowing this. She embarrassed one of her fellow students by talking about something that he did in private, and he was mortified. She should never have known those things. The priest and nuns said that on one occasion, she acted like a snake, and it was so strange that her neck seemed to actually stretch, elongate, and she slithered on the floor in an inhuman way, like she was made out of rubber, and then she actually bit one of the nuns, and the mark that she left looked like a snake bite instead of a human bite. Furthermore, she was sometimes witnessed levitating above her bed, sometimes four or five feet above her mattress. And um, on one occasion, she levitated in the mission chapel in the presence of 170 people, and some people were trying to pull her down, tugging on her to pull her back into her seat, and they couldn't force her to go. Now, all of this is just a matter of record. And you say, well, I don't believe in supernatural. I don't believe that God 
would allow anything like that. I just don't think those things happen. It's all superstition. The devil is alive and well, and he's active where you live as well. And if you're going to bring the gospel to the next person, then you have to be aware that there is going to be demonic interference of some kind. This is dramatic. Not many are going to be like this. But always the colleagues, the co-workers of Satan are going to be against you if you're going to bring the gospel to the next person. You say, well, it'll never happen here. You notice that we in popular culture have been inviting these influences into the American society, into our generation. And so some of you will recognize um, on the right-hand side, we have uh, Wanda from uh, comic book fame in the Marvel Universe. Wanda fighting with Agatha, and they're both witches. And they're using their powers as witches. And there's even a little toy that you see there at the top where Wanda and Agatha are fighting with their magic. And so we'll, we'll bring all these toys to our children, right? And uh, on the far left-hand top side, you have Game of Thrones, a very popular uh, TV series, uh, which uh, featured a witch. Of course, everybody knows at the bottom left-hand side of this slide, we have Harry and Hermione and their witches, and everybody loves that. And you have a little toy Hermione witch, if you want to give that to your children. And on the right-hand side, we have Maleficent, uh, and everybody knows that she's a hero. She's not a villain anymore like she was in the uh, original series uh, with Disney. And so we all love the witches. Now everybody's inviting this into our world. We're just reminding you that it's not just a story, right? You know that this has reality. Will it ever come to us? Well, here's the uh, Satanic Temple's After School Club. And the ACLU in Virginia wrote this past February, one year ago, uh, this article. In a victory for free speech and religious liberty, the after-school Satan Club held its first meeting tonight at B.M. Williams Primary School in Chesapeake, Virginia. Last September, Chesapeake Public Schools officials authorized the Good News Club, that's our club, the Good News Club to hold after-school meetings at B.M. Williams Elementary School, So the news prompted local parents to contact the Satanic Temple with the hope of bringing to the region an alternative program that would be inclusive for their non-Christian children. So now we have in the city of Chesapeake a nice after-school Satan club. So this is our world, and it's more and more our world. And you have to brace that we are living in a post-Christian society. And when you want to bring the gospel to the next person, you should understand that there's going to be a fight about it and it's not going to be easy. Now, you'll be discouraged because you'll say it's just not easy. Right, it's not easy. But God is at work and so we follow the Savior. In chapter 13, verse 6, remember how it sounded. They found a certain sorcerer, a false prophet, but Elmas, the sorcerer, withstood them. So, guard up. Here we go. It's in America too. Now we have to talk about the rise, fall, and recovery of John Mark. We said that there were two great fights as soon as the church wanted to bring the gospel outside to the next place. Two big fights. One fight on the outside because we have Satan and his co-workers fighting against us in the person of Elemis in that case. So an outsider fighting against us. Then we have an inside fight. Besides what happens on the outside, there's what happens on the inside. And a wonderful case study of all of this inner struggle is John Mark. 
All right, we're going to talk about the rise, the fall, and the recovery of John Mark. In chapter 13, verse 4, They being sent forth by the Holy Spirit, departed unto Seleucia, and from there they sailed to the island of Cyprus, which is what we've been talking about all day. And when they were at Salamis, a city in Cyprus, they preached the word of God in their synagogues of the Jews, and they also had John as their assistant. John, sometimes called John Mark. They have an assistant. So we really have Paul, Barnabas, and their helper, their administrative assistant, John Mark. Verse 13, now when Paul and his company loosed from the island, we're done on the island. When Paul and his company loosed the ship from Paphos, they came to Perga in Pamphylia. That's not the island. They're on the mainland again. And John, departing from them, returned to Jerusalem. Like, hey, he didn't last very long. He came to be their helper. They were just on the island as their first stop. There are going to be so many other stops. They're on the island as their first stop. And John Mark says, I quit. Like, hey, what's going on? Let's talk about the rise of John Mark. He's a young man and he has everything going for him. In the first place, his mother was one of the six Marys in the New Testament. There are lots of Marys. You keep running into that name, don't you? Well, his mother is one of those. His house was a gathering place for the apostolic church, for the earliest Christians. So in Acts 12, 12, remember this is when Peter was miraculously released from prison. Where does he go? In Acts 12, 12, when Peter had considered the things that had happened in his miraculous release, he came to the house of Mary, the mother of John, who is also called Mark. So John, who is also called Mark, that's why we call him John Mark, right? His mother is Mary. And many were gathered together praying. Now, the homes in Jerusalem are quite small. Probably the typical Jerusalem home was the size of your kitchen. They're small. And then you usually have an upstairs. So it'd be your kitchen plus another room that size above your kitchen. But not this house. This house, Mary's house, John Mark's mother's house, is big enough to have a proper church gathering. She has some money. Well, John Mark is in this house that's used by the early church for gatherings. It might be the place where the Last Supper took place with Jesus and his disciples right before Jesus went to the cross. Um, In Mark chapter 14, verse 15, we have this. Uh, Disciples, you're going to pick out a room. You'll find a man carrying water. Follow him. And that man will show you a large upper room Furnished and prepared. Make ready the Passover meal for us there. And his disciples found, as he said to them, and they made ready the Passover. So we have all of that happening. At the end of the chapter, when it's time for Jesus to be done with the Last Supper, to go to the garden where he will be arrested, we read that there followed him a certain young man having a linen cloth cast about his naked body. And the young man laid hold on him. And he left the linen cloth and fled from them naked. Now that's a crazy narrative. Every part of that is just, what? What is going on here? All right. You know that young, proper Jewish boys really don't go anywhere naked, right? I mean, this is not San Francisco. So what is happening here? And who wrote this? This is written in the Gospel of who? 
Mark. Um, what we think happened, and we could be wrong, but most people think this is what happened. Mark is the young man who hastily wrapped something around himself and followed Jesus. Okay. And why did he have to hastily wrap something around himself to follow Jesus? Well, because we think that Jesus might have been at Mark's house. And when it came time for Jesus to leave, Mark was ready for bed. And in those days, people didn't wear flannel pajamas to bed. So now Jesus is walking to the garden where he will be arrested. And Mark says, oh, I got to go. All of this is happening in his house. So he knows that Jesus was having Passover with his disciples. And he knows that they're leaving. And he wasn't going to go. He was going to go to sleep. Everything's late. But he decided, no, I, I better go. So he grabs something, wraps it around himself, and follows Jesus. Then, sure as the world, Jesus gets arrested. And Mark says, I'm getting out of here. And somebody says, look, a guy who's weird. Grab him. And so they grab him. And they just get the tablecloth. And he runs away naked. Evidently, that's what happens. That's our best guess. Uh, you have to have a master's degree in divinity to know that. Um, so we think that's Mark. And if it's Mark, that's why all of this makes sense, because the Passover meal with Jesus was happening in his house. And he was going to go to sleep and decided not to go to sleep. And he followed and he wasn't ready, quite dressed to follow Jesus. All right. So. Perhaps his house was the house of the Last Supper. Furthermore, perhaps his house then would also be the house that uh, Jesus would uh, visit for his resurrection appearances after his resurrection. So again, we have the large upper room where the Passover meal took place and a naked guy somehow associated with that. And then in Mark 16, 14, we're on Resurrection Sunday. It says, afterward, Jesus appeared to the eleven as they sat to eat. So remember, where would they go? Well, they would probably go where they had their Passover meal. So Jesus finds them. They sat to eat and he reprimanded them because they did not believe those things which uh, they should have believed about his resurrection. In Acts chapter 1, verse 12, this is after the ascension. So they've watched Jesus go up from the Mount of Olives. And it says, then they returned to Jerusalem from the Mount called Olivet and they went up into an upper room. And these all continued with one mind in prayer and supplication. Like, oh, well, there's that upper room again. It was the upper room before Jesus was arrested. It's the upper room after his ascension that evidently is where the disciples are rendezvousing with one another. And that would be evidently John Mark's house. And notice then the book ends. Hours before the death of Jesus, Passover, Last Supper in the upper room. Hours after the ascension, upper room. Apostolic prayer meeting when Peter's released from prison, John Mark's mother's house. So we have Mark evidently at the Passover story. Mark evidently in the prison release story of chapter 12. Maybe this is all happening around Mark. That makes Mark a pretty important person. Somehow in all of this, Peter came to think of Mark like he was his own son. So in 1 Peter 5.13, the church that is at Babylon, probably a cryptic reference to Rome because Babylon conquered Jerusalem and um, later uh, Rome was the enemy. Uh, so probably the church that is at Rome, Babylon, salutes you and so does Marcus, my son. I love him like a son. 
So Peter at John Mark's mother's house on various occasions, and he just comes to love Mark. Mark was also a beloved nephew or cousin, hard to tell from Greek, of Barnabas. So Colossians 4.10, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, salutes you, and Marcus, nephew to Barnabas. So, okay, Peter is a very important guy. He thinks of Mark as a son. Barnabas is a very important guy, the first missionary, and he's uncle to John Mark. All right, since Mark's mother had a large gated house, remember, uh, Peter's released from prison, uh, all the believers are there praying, and there's a gate, and the servant goes to answer the gate, Rhoda. Uh, so John Mark's mother has a house large enough for people to meet in, with a gated entrance, and a servant girl to go answer the gate. There's some serious money there. Additionally, Barnabas, we are told in chapter 4, had enough substance that he could sell his real estate and bring the money to the apostles, lay at the apostles' feet. So he had significant real estate. And so evidently, Barnabas' family, John Mark's family, had some wealth. So Mark has a lot going for him. Um, after the famine relief visit, and we talked about that a couple of weeks ago in Acts chapter 11. After the family, family, the people in Antioch, right, want to give a gift to the people in Jerusalem who are very poor. So they get a gift. They send it by the hands of Paul and Barnabas. To Jerusalem they go. Paul and Barnabas are in Jerusalem for a time. They come back to Antioch when all of that's done, and they bring John Mark with them. So apparently they really like him. John Mark has been chosen by Saul and Barnabas to be with them. And when they take their first missionary journey, they bring John Mark along. Again, verse 5, they had John as their assistant. He's their administrative assistant. So it's a meteoric rise. You know, he's like born with a silver spoon. He has money. All the Christians come to his house. Uh, He was there when Jesus was arrested. He's a really important guy to Barnabas and Paul. He's got the silver spoon. He has the it factor. It's the rise of John Mark. But then they go to Barnabas' home area, Cyprus, the island of Cyprus. And John Mark probably had relatives there as well. And they preached the word. And you can imagine John Mark would like that. You know, I'm a relative to, to some of these people here on the island of Cyprus. But as soon as Paul and Barnabas leave the island, John Mark gives up and he goes home. It says, John, departing from them, returned to Jerusalem. This is the fall of John Mark. This meteoric rise, everything's going his way. He keeps getting chosen. Peter thinks he's wonderful. Barnabas thinks he's wonderful. Paul thinks he's wonderful. And then he bails out. He quits. This is the fall of John Mark. It was a big day when John Mark decided not to continue his life calling, not to stay as the helper. I don't want to help you guys anymore. And we don't know why he didn't want to help anymore. Maybe because it was on the island of Cyprus where Paul began to lead Barnabas and not the other way around. Uh, Barnabas was sort of the leader of the duet for some period of time. But now Paul is. So you can see in Acts 13, 13. Now when Paul and his company, you know, maybe earlier it would have said, now when Barnabas and his company. But now it says Paul. It's Paul and his traveling companions. And maybe John Mark doesn't like 
that his uncle is no longer in charge of the duo. Maybe John Mark, who is a Jewish boy to the core of his soul, maybe he doesn't like that now Saul is only going to call himself by his Roman name, Paul. Like, you know, you're kind of messing up here. We're Jewish. You know, what's wrong with being Jewish? And everything now is Paul, Paul, Paul instead of his Jewish name. Maybe missionary life was too hard. We don't know why he gave up. But he did give up. And Paul was deeply disturbed by this. This bothered Paul. And rightfully so. Paul was bothered at this lack of commitment. And he was bothered at other things. He was disturbed when the Judaizers of his day came along and led people astray. And John Mark probably led people astray in some ways. You know, he was like a negative example, and Paul didn't like this. When it came time to go on the second missionary tour, we read in Acts 15:38, Paul thought it not good to take John Mark with them, who departed from them, from Pamphylia, and did not go with them to the work. So Barnabas says, let's take Mark with us. And Paul says, let's not. That guy, you can't rely on him. You never know what he's going to do. It was a big day, however, when John Mark returned to his calling. So Barnabas says, well, let's bring John Mark with us again on the second missionary tour. Paul says, let's not. And Barnabas says, well, how about then if we just divide? And I'll take Mark back to Cyprus like we did before. And you take Silas on the second missionary tour. And that's the way it turned out. It was a big day when Mark got back to where he belonged. On the missionary circuit again with Uncle Barnabas and doing the right thing. And notice now he changed his name. From now on, we're not going to call him John, his Jewish name. We're going to call him Mark, Marcus. That's his Roman name. And so it says in Acts 15:39, the contention was so sharp between Paul and Barnabas as to what they should do about John Mark that they departed apart from one another. So Barnabas took Mark, not John, Mark, the Roman name. I think John Mark has learned that you don't have to be Jewish to your core in every situation. And they sailed to Cyprus. Back they go. That was, that was so great because now John Mark is... Going back to where he belonged. You know, this is where it all happened. Let's, let's go back and do it again. This is the recovery. And now, John Mark, he becomes Paul's trusted colleague again. In uh, 2 Timothy 4.11, this is Paul's final letter. That's the last thing he wrote to us, the church. And he says, um, he's looking forward to seeing John Mark again because he says, he is profitable to me for the ministry. He's a good guy. That fellow really, really helps. So I love him. Bring him to me. And uh, he continued as Peter's son, uh, Marcus, my son, salutes you. That's what Peter said. And Barnabas's dear nephew and colleague. So he's back where he belongs. And he wrote the gospel of Mark. And do you know we don't call it the gospel of John Mark? It's just Mark. A lot has changed. He is with the program now. He has recovered himself. There were actually a lot of big days in John Mark's life, right? There was the day when he was there, present, observing from time to time, at least aware of the Last Supper and the arrest of Jesus in the garden. That was a big day. It's a big day when church leaders passed freely back and forth in his mother's house. And there he was. It's a big day when Peter was miraculously 
released from prison and appeared at his gate. That was a big day. It was a big day when he was chosen to be the administrative assistant of Paul and Barnabas. That was a big day. And it was a big day when he abandoned his life calling and went home. That was a big day, a bad day. But no day was bigger than the day he brought his life back into alignment with his calling. Went back to the mission circuit with Uncle Barnabas, back to the island, back to where you should be. It's not impossible to come back home. God is a God of second chances. And in a way, we all know that because that conversion, you know, that was our second chance. So we became Christians. But what happens if, as a Christian, you mess it all up? Then you still have a God of second chances. Come back home where you belong. Do what John Mark did. And that's the biggest day of all. The fights. As soon as we decide to move the church forward, there's going to be an outside fight. The fight against Satan's co-workers who are trying to turn seekers away from the truth. So that's where you live. Guard up. That's where you live. And then there's the inside fight. The fight against our own failures. And oh, these are so painful. Why do we fail? We hate it. But take heart. You have a God of second chances. So go back where you belong and do it all over again, just like John Mark.